You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Proverbs 30 verses 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tiana. Give me neither poverty nor riches. The book of Proverbs is a book all about wisdom, and that line right there is perhaps one of the most profound in the whole book, I think. You see, this, these words strike me as the words of someone who truly understands the power of money, both from the lack of it and the abundance of it. He prays to avoid poverty, which sounds obvious, who wants to be poor, but he also prays to avoid riches, which is less obvious because surely we all want to be rich. But we're told here in chapter, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 30 that these are the words of Agur, the son of Jacar, the oracle, and you get the sense that he's experienced both poverty and riches, that he's seen it, that he's felt it, that he's had it himself perhaps, and he understands the dangers. In fact, he, he prays, remove from me falsehood and lying, because he sees that both wealth and poverty can be deceptive, that we can get things uh, messed up with it. We can be fooled by either of them. The rich can be fool and deny the Lord, while the poor may steal and profane the name of their God. Both are problematic. And so today, today I want to explore this, to explore the falsehoods of both riches and poverty, to challenge perhaps some of our assumptions, and then to point us to the life-giving truth that God offers us. How about we pray as we get into it? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom of Proverbs, and we ask that we might receive it tonight, that you might challenge us and build us up. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's important, first of all, for us to emphasise the curse of poverty. You see, sometimes we might almost idealise poverty. We admire the nobility of those who have nothing but are still generous or even happy. Uh, sometimes we equate poverty with piety. You think of the monks in the Middle Ages or something like that, taking a, a vow of poverty. It seems very impressive, seems very righteous. We acknowledge that Jesus himself was poor, that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And so while there is, though, something impressive about these things, they come, I'd say, despite the curse of poverty, not because poverty is a blessing. I mean, just imagine not knowing where your next meal was coming from. Imagine you're wondering tonight, how are you going to feed your family? Are you going to have a roof over your head? Where are you going to stay tonight? These are some of the dangers, the curse of poverty the things that make it so difficult. And yet what's interesting in Proverbs, it talks about some of that, it hints at some of that, but it also goes deeper to the spiritual danger of poverty. Here he says, the poor man might be tempted to steal and profane the name of his God. So desperate will they be to, uh, to, to get what they need that they'll be tempted to compromise their ethics or their values. Imagine them uh, stealing something to, to get what they need or perhaps someone feeling that they had to sell their body because they need provision. 
And then within all of this, there is this worry that they might profane the name of their God, that the poor person will resent God for their situation, blame him for that, lose trust in him. And so he implores God to feed me with the food that is needful for me. Give me what I need so that I don't lose faith in your goodness. And then elsewhere in Proverbs, we see the social curse of poverty. Chapter 19, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. See, wealth brings status in the society. It it gives us power and influence and opportunity, but the poor are ignored. They're dismissed. They're not seen as, as valuable. They're deserted even by their friends. Proverbs 14 says the, the rich have many friends. People want to be around them. There's a glamour to wealth. By contrast, the poor are disliked even by their neighbour. Perhaps they're resented. Perhaps they're seen as a drain on other people's resources or a drain on taxpayers or something like that. This is the curse of poverty. And there are millions of people around the world today who are experiencing it. The 2019 estimate by the World Bank said that there were 660 million people in the world living in extreme poverty. That's 8.5% of the world's population. Even here in Australia, a rich country, there are many in poverty still. The Smith family estimates that one in six Australian children live in poverty, that over two million households experience severe food insecurity. That's one in five households. So poverty is a real thing, even here in Australia, and it's a curse. It's a very difficult thing for people to experience. And so we're tempted to just want wealth and everything around us tells us that's what we should pursue. That's what the message that we get in advertising and on TV. As we walk past our neighbour's house and we see something that they have, we want to measure ourselves by them. And riches promise us a lot. They promise us freedom, security, comfort. And it is true that riches in and of themselves can be a good thing. They're not in and of themselves bad. God doesn't, uh, like, we don't want to be poor. And wealth can be a good thing from God. Proverbs 22, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honour and life. So often God blesses his people with these things. Praise God for that. But Proverbs makes it very clear that riches can also be dangerous. They can have an impact on us and they can distort us in significant ways. First of all, people can do terrible things to get money. They can lie and cheat deceive others. They can use people, then spit them, spit them out, take advantage of the vulnerable just to serve their own interests. Just imagine a, a scam artist or a dodgy businessman. Proverbs 11 says that the wicked earns deceptive wages. Uh, recently, I read a book called Empire of Deception about a guy called Leo Koritz. By the title, you can probably tell, you tell he wasn't a very ethical guy. Um, he was basically, uh, just, he, he did this massive Ponzi scheme. You might have heard of a Ponzi scheme. It's basically a, a fraudulent get-rich-quick scheme. Let's say, for some, uh, for instance, I come to you and I say, um, I'm doing this new development in a remote part of Fiji. Perhaps I just need $100,000 from you and then I'll start doing this thing for you and I'll give you a dividend. Every year I'll give you 5%. And you look at me and you think, oh, okay, he's got a nice suit, it's a nice brochure. Sounds fair enough. Put down the money. And then I start giving you this dividend. Every year you get this money. And it sounds good. And so you tell your friends about it and then they give $100,000 and another person gives $100,000 and they each get dividends. 
The thing is, it's not actually any development at all. It's all just made up. And yes, I'm giving you $5,000, but I'm pocketing all the rest. That's basically a Ponzi scheme. It was named after a guy called Charles Ponzi who ran one of these in the 1920s. It could, however, have been called a Corette scheme, except he came a little bit later, but he did it longer and better and more successfully than Ponzi. See, Corette was fixated on getting rich. He was a lawyer in Chicago and he was frustrated that he wasn't getting rich quick enough. So he looked for different ways to do that. He started selling fake mortgages. And then that still wasn't enough, so he, he settled on this idea of selling land, made-up land, in a remote part of Panama, called the Bayano River. And so he started getting these investors, and he was telling them, oh, this is perfect for agriculture, it's really going well. And then later on he said, oh, I've struck oil, and so even more people wanted to buy into this thing. It was all completely made up, but he was getting more and more investors in, and he was just rolling in the money making millions of dollars. In our time, it'd be hundreds of millions of dollars. It was quite extraordinary. And the thing about Kurtz was he was a brilliant salesman. He was charismatic, magnetic personality. Everyone liked him. He was impressive. But his key strategy was what you might call negative salesmanship. So when someone would come to him, he'd say, oh, no, I'm sorry, I don't have any stock left. I'm just reserving it for my closest friends. And of course, that made it seem even more attractive and people were basically falling over themselves to give them their money. So he made a real fortune. But he had to do some terrible things to get that money. See, his great trick was to play on people's trust. The very first investors that he had were his closest family and friends because he figured if people can see that, that he figured they would be loyal, but also other people were outside investors would see this and think, wow, they, he must be trustworthy. I mean, no one would uh, scam their own family and friends, so he must be legit. And so he built all of his lies on this trust. You say later on to someone else, it's amazing how the closer the person are, the person is to you, the, the, the harder they will fall. Like he was playing on this. It's psychotic, really. People do terrible things to get money. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It makes people compromise and do terrible things. So people can do terrible things to get money, but also they can do terrible things with money. They might spend it on evil things or they can waste it on stupid things. There's a whole set of reality TV shows that are basically all about rich people and how they spend their money and it's agonising to watch because they spend like 40 grand just on a new outfit or something like this. It's so painful to watch it. Proverbs 21, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Just devour it. You might have heard of something called an NFT. It's a digital asset, a JPEG picture perhaps, or a video file that can be bought and sold just like a physical asset. And you can buy all kinds of things like this. So the founder of Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey, sold his first tweet for almost $3 million. In your notes, I've included the pixelated graphic of a man smoking a pipe. That's sold for $7 million. Someone paid 630 grand for a yacht. Now, maybe that sounds not too bad. A lot of yachts can be millions of dollars. Well, this yacht is only in a computer game. Like, this is crazy. Why are people doing this? As one writer puts it, are NFTs the dumbest thing to happen in the history of humanity? 
Well, why are they doing it? Well, Nathan J. Robinson says it's because they're buying status. They're buying social recognition. See, the whole idea of an NFT is that you are buying this little token that says that you own this thing, that you are special. Now, there's a massive hole in this because even when you buy it, you're just buying the token. So that little picture that you see in your notes, you can just download that. They, you haven't bought the copyright. It's not exclusive access to any of these things. All you're buying is this little token that tells people that you spent this money and that this belongs to you. People are buying status. If it feels like yours, says Robinson, and if others are willing to recognise it as yours, then you're getting status. And people are willing to do this. But there's an irony in this, isn't there? See, they're buying this to impress other people. But I look at this and I just think that they're fools. This just seems absolutely crazy. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, Proverbs 19 says. And that actually points to something else that happens with wealth. We can do terrible things to get it and with it, and ultimately it does terrible things to us. It can start to change our values and distort them. Riches can make us arrogant and self-entitled, Proverbs 28. A rich man is wise in his own eyes. So they're not used to being challenged by anyone else, and so they just assume that they're always right. Proverbs 18 says that the poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. They, they become rude and dismissive of others. They assume that they're better than other people just because they're wealthier. And there's actually research that backs this up. Uh, one study suggested that people who drive luxury cars are less likely to give way to pedestrians and more likely to cut off other drivers. Another study suggests that rich people are more likely to cheat in a game to take more candy than they're offered. And it's incredible how this can have an impact. In fact, even fake money can do this. They did a study where they had two people who were playing Monopoly and they gave more of this fake money to one of the players. And at first the guy was a little bit awkward about it. And then he embraced it and he starts flaunting his cash and talking louder and moving his pieces aggressively. So even fake money affects people. They've done studies that even suggest that just thinking about money makes people more likely to be immoral, to do some ethical compromise. So money can deform us. It can change our values. But perhaps the most uh, insidious thing that happens is a more subtle thing, and that is that it it makes people self-sufficient. That's what the, the writer points to here. Do not give me riches lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And that really brings us to the key message of Proverbs. We've seen that Proverbs is all about wisdom and the key to wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's recognising the greatness, the majesty of God and living in light of that, with that sense of perspective. But when someone is rich, they can lose that sense of perspective. They can imagine that they are strong enough that they have earned all of their greatness and that they don't need God. Who is the Lord? I don't need him. But the irony is, of course, that the wealthier you are, it actually emphasises your need of God. Because riches promise a lot, but often deliver very little. John Jacob Astor was the first multimillionaire in America and he described himself as the most miserable man on earth. 
You cannot buy happiness. Proverbs 17 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better to have something simple and basic than have all of this wealth and to be unhappy. Because often riches bring out envy and uh, rivalries. It's not worth it. Also, uh, riches promise security, but it takes that away too. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, it says in Proverbs 18, like a high wall in his imagination. He, he imagines that if he is wealthy, then he is impregnable. Nothing can reach him, go against him. But of course, that's false. Timothy Keller points out that he's often heard people who are wealthy say, oh, life isn't supposed to be this way when they face some tragedy. When something goes wrong in their life, they say, oh, life is not supposed to be like this. But Keller makes a point that he doesn't hear that from people who are poorer because they recognise they don't have the same sense of self-sufficiency. They're more likely to be humble. You see, actually, the more wealth you have, the more anxious you become. William Vanderbilt uh, was a millionaire in America, oversaw a number of uh, railways. He said that the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Proverbs 15 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. It's actually better to have just a little as long as you're not struggling in the same ways. And see, ironically, money often makes us vulnerable. It makes us a target. Proverbs 13, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. You don't hear about a poor person having their child kidnapped because there's no ransom that they can demand. It's the rich. Wealth makes you a target. It doesn't deliver the security that you're expecting. I'm always fascinated by the stories of Tats Lotto winners. Like, we're all drawn to the promise of winning the lottery, aren't we? I don't know if you remember the ad. Life could be a dream, but often it's more like a nightmare. In 1988, William Budd Post won $16 million in the Pennsylvania lottery, but within a year he was $1 million in debt. After his big windfall, a former girlfriend successfully sued him for a third of his winnings, and then his brother was arrested for trying to kill him, getting a a hitman to try and kill him because he figured that he could get something from the inheritance if his brother was dead. Uh, Bud later tried to invest some money into some family businesses. If I was him, I don't know if I'd go into business with my family, if my brothers just tried to kill me. I don't know if that's a great family. But anyway, he tried to do this and lost a whole stack of money. Ended up in prison because he fired a gun at a bill collector. He says, I wish the lottery win never happened. It was totally a nightmare. I was much happier when I was broke. According to the New York Daily News, 70% of lottery winners end up broke within seven years. And some lose more than their money, some lose their life. Uh, one uh, guy called Billy Bob Harold Jr., the most American name of the year, uh, <laughs> struck the jackpot in 1997, winning $31 million in the Texas State Lottery. He'd been working just at a stock boy at the local hardware store. Then he quit that and started investing his money, buying up property, new cars. But now he was a target and everyone was trying to get money off him. He ended up splitting with his wife and eventually committed suicide. Shortly before his death, he confided to his financial advisor, winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to him. So Richard's 
can destroy you and then actually desert you. Proverbs 21, the getting of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapour and a snare of death. It promises something and then takes it all away. That's what happened with uh, Leo Koritz. Sure, he lived it up and he was successful for a, a long time. But the more people he conned, the more people he had to con. The more popular he became, the more investors he had to find. And he talks about kind of being trapped within these lies and just there was no way to turn back. Eventually he was exposed and as the law was kind of drawing in, closing in on him, he wrote a letter to his son. And it's quite haunting. He says, Dear son, this is probably the last communication you will have from me. I'm a fugitive from justice, family and friends. I'm a victim of idleness, selfishness and a desire for the acclaim of friends. Be a good boy. Be straightforward and be honest. If you're ever tempted, think of the fate that awaits me. Like his wealth had promised everything and then he'd lost everything. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Then Paul goes on to say, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As Coretz was being uh, pulled up, uh, driven up to the prison, he said to someone, well, this is the end of the rainbow and it's up to me to pay for chasing it. Riches desert you. And the end of the rainbow will come for everyone. Eventually. You see, riches don't last. They cannot last. After John D. Rockefeller died, someone asked how much money he'd left behind, and the answer was all of it. Because that's the reality, isn't it? Whatever we have, we leave behind. No matter how much we have, we can't take any of it with us. And then what? Proverbs 11, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish and the expectation of wealth perishes too. All of those hopes and dreams, that those, uh, the, the imagination that you had that it would give you freedom and security, all of those things are gone. And now you must face God. I mean, that's the story of the rich fool, isn't it? Jesus tells that incredible parable in Luke 12. There's this rich man who's building up all of his estate and he's imagining how great things are and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do that. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So what about when our soul is required of God? It won't matter how much money we have or don't have when we face God. Proverbs 22 says, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. In this world, it's easy to buy status. We rank people according to their wealth. The poor are ignored and dismissed. The rich find opportunity and honour. But it doesn't matter with God. The rich and the poor meet together before our maker. And what will we say when he assesses how we have lived, when he assesses how we have spent our money. So that's going to be part of how God assesses our life because money does have this big impact on us, on all of us. 
Money can have a big impact on us even if we don't have much of it. Even if you're poor, it doesn't mean that you aren't greedy, perhaps. Perhaps you fall into sins of envy of other people. Or perhaps, as in this passage, you profane the name of the Lord. You, you resent, you're bitter towards God. You wish that he'd given you more. You resent him for not giving you more. We can still idolise wealth even if we don't have it. And then if we're rich and you think all of us generally, most of us will be a, have some level of wealth, and God will be seeing how much it might have distorted us. Perhaps we've done bad things to get our money. Perhaps we've cheated on our taxes or taken from others, compromised our values. We may have done bad things with our money. We might have wasted it just trying to keep up with the Joneses. We might have idolised comfort and spent only on ourselves. We might have ignored the plight of those who are in need. And it may have distorted our values. What has money done to us? Has it made us scornful? Of others? Has it made us dismissive? Has it made us self-sufficient? Do we, somewhere in our hearts, do we say, who is the Lord? So God will assess this. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, Proverbs 11 says, but righteousness delivers from death. So, so there is a way out if we have righteousness, but the problem is we fall short of that too, don't we? Because all of us, in some way, are unrighteous in the way that we think about money and about lots of things. We don't have the righteousness that would deliver us from death. But the wonderful thing is, and this is the message of the Christian gospel, that Jesus does have that righteousness. Jesus has this abundance, this wealth of righteousness. He was perfect. And he gives that to us and then he takes our sin. If you want to imagine in financial terms, we have built up this great debt of our sin. We give that to Jesus and he pays for it. He pays for the debt and then he gives us his righteousness. And so that when God looks at us, he sees us in credit. And all we need to do is to acknowledge our sin and entrust ourselves to him. Then he will give that to us. And he loves to give it. Ephesians 1 says, in him we have redemption. Redemption means to buy something back. We have redemption. God buys us back through the blood of Jesus. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. God has this wealth, these riches of grace that he loves to give. And all we need to do is to ask for it. That's what God is offering us. He's offering the wealth if we will say yes. And then not just that, Jesus also offers to transform us, to set us free, to enjoy the good things that he has given us. Proverbs 10 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. See, money in itself, as I said before, is not evil. And with Christ, as God changes us, it can become a blessing without sorrow. It becomes something that we enjoy and use well without it destroying us. And it's all in relation to God. That's what I love about the book of Proverbs. It's, it's all about how do we live in relation to God? Do we live in the fear of him? This guy in Proverbs 30 addresses God. Two things I ask of you. There's this intimacy there. He's living in light of God in his life. 
And if we do that, then we can find the blessing of wealth, the blessing in riches that God intends. I want to suggest four things, four habits that can help us uh, embrace these things in the right way and to protect our hearts from the sin in riches. The first thing is to be thankful. See, the great danger of riches is that it distances us from God. It makes us self-sufficient. We imagine that we don't need him. And so the contrast to this is to be thankful, to recognise that every good thing that we have comes from above, from the Father of lights, that he has gifted it to us. And actually, Keller says that we need to thank him, that thanking God makes our hearts safe to receive his blessings. Gifts from God, he says, that are not acknowledged as gifts from God are deadly to the soul because they thicken this illusion that we have of self-sufficiency. So we break through that by acknowledging that God has given these things to us. We are thankful to him. So this week, be thankful for the blessings that he has given us, the physical blessings that he has given you. When you look in your cupboard, Thank God for it. When you walk into your house, thank God that you get to be there. When you do something fun during the week, thank God that you can do that. Thank God that you can buy food. All of these things. Ultimately, it's because God has gifted it to you. Be thankful for it. And then secondly, watch your spending. But really what I mean is watch how what how you your spending, how it impacts you. How is it working on your heart? Right, So wealth works on our hearts and it changes how we think. So how is what you're spending money on, how is that shaping you? Jesus said famously in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think it works two ways. See, what we spend our money on reveals our heart, reveals what we care about, reveals our priorities, but then it also shapes our heart. So let's take, for instance, uh, you want to buy some stock in a company. BHP or Qantas, whatever it is, you're putting your uh, you're putting your money there, and your heart will follow that too. You'll start looking at the stock prices. Oh, okay, it's going well. I'm pleased with that. Your heart is following after those things. No, that's that's fine, but it's also interesting how these things can start to work on our hearts. Do we start to <clears throat> find all of our comfort and our security in the stocks, in the money that we have? Do those things start to become an idol, the thing that we end up trusting, the thing that we look for for comfort and even for meaning? See, these are gods with a little g. They're not the true God, and so they cannot satisfy us. They're too small. When we just spend our money on our idols, we'll never have enough. We give to the idol, but it doesn't give everything back. It doesn't give us what we're looking for. So think about how your spending is shaping your heart. What is the impact it has on you? To just give an example for myself, I love books. I spend lots of money just buying books. And I've noticed that I, like, I love the thrill, the chase of it. The thrill, man, what a nerd. The thrill of books. I, I love the chase, looking for some bargain book, the salvos. I love seeing my book sales fill up. And when I look at a book, I think, oh, this is going to be great. I can imagine when I read a book, I enter into the world of that book and I know that I'm going to learn things. I'm going to experience stuff as I read it. So each book represents an experience. 
So I love this, and I keep buying, buying, and buying, and it's almost addictive. Now, that's fine. There's lots of good things about that. But I've noticed how sometimes it can become oppressive. So I've got all these books, and I'm never going to get through them all. And sometimes they start to almost taunt me. I'm looking at these books, and I'm like, I want that experience, but I'm never going to get it. When am I going to get it? I finish one book, and I think, great, how am I going to read all these other ones? I said, do you see what's happening? I'm investing in these things and I'm pursuing the idol, pursuing the experience, but I'm not getting everything back. I can't ever experience all that I want. So the idol starts to oppress me. The thing that I'm spending my money on doesn't deliver what it could. The journalist Jeremy Seabook writes, the only chance of satisfaction that we imagine is getting more of what we have now. I want more money, I want more books, whatever it is. But what we have now actually makes us dissatisfied. So if we get more of it, what's that going to do? Will it make us more satisfied or more dissatisfied? I'm constantly wanting more, but it's never actually going to come through. So the worship of riches and the things that they can buy it They cannot satisfy us. We grasp for it. We go chasing it more and more. But the more that we chase, the further it gets out of our reach. Money gives, but it also takes away. So watch what's happening in your heart. See the falsehoods of wealth and hold them loosely. And then invest in better things. And this is the third thing, be generous. See, the very best way for us to conquer the idols and the dangers of wealth is to not just spend our money on ourselves, but to spend it on others. When we give it away, we rejoice in that. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And isn't that true? Like it's so true. When you give money away, you don't regret that. If you've got a a sponsor child with World Vision or Compassion, you don't regret the fact that you're doing that money. You get their little letter and you think, wow, isn't that fantastic? I love that my money is doing something positive. It's more blessed to give than receive. Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China. He ended up giving away two-thirds of his income. He wrote, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing I became. The more he gave the more he got. Enjoy. Proverbs honours the generous person. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Our world around us might say that the the poor are not as important, but as God's people, we recognise that they are, that every person is made in the image of God and has an incredible value, an infinite value. And so we seek to honour and bless and to protect. And then fourthly, be purposeful with your wealth. Chapter 10, the wealth, uh, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. So a fool misuses their money. They don't know what to spend it on. They spend it on stupid stuff that doesn't last. But a wise person uses their money wisely. They spend it on good things. They start businesses. They give people gainful employment. They invest it wisely, multiplying their resources. They provide for their family and their inheritance. They're generous to the poor and they provide for those who are in need. They're purposeful with their wealth. And as God's people, we can have 
the very highest and greatest purpose in our giving. See, when we just invest in the now, we're spending money on stuff that won't last. One writer compares it to uh, you've got a hotel room and you buy up a whole bunch of furniture for your hotel room. Like as soon as you leave that room, you're not going to get to take that furniture with you, are you? It's gone. That's what we're investing in if we're just investing in stuff that's here, in the here and now. But as God's people, we can invest in the, in the after. We can invest in heavenly things. We can invest in gospel ministry. We can invest in having the gospel go out across our city, across the road and across the world so that all nations are disciples and come to know Jesus. As Randy Elkhorn says, you can't take your money with you, but you can send it on ahead. Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, so send out those who can harvest it so we can spend our money on that. We can make it possible for more people to hear the gospel and to respond. As Elkhorn says, because we give, eternity will be different. We can make eternity different for others. That is purposeful giving. That is the blessing of riches used well, leading to life. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we acknowledge you as the God of all things, the one who gives every good thing to us. We're thankful that you provide for us. Lord, help us to be humble and help us to be uh, generous with what we have. Lord, I do pray for anyone here who is really struggling financially, is feeling that stress. Lord, may we provide for them and may we support them if we're able to. But Lord, may they also know that you are close and that you are blessing them. Lord, I pray that we will not be ruled by our wealth, that we will recognise and see how it's impacting us and our hearts. May we be generous with what we have. May we change the future by investing in that which is purposeful. We thank you that we can have treasure when we invest in you, that, Lord, may our hearts seek after a future where many people are gathered around your throne. May we be motivated by that. May our treasures truly be in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.